If you'll open your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 7. This week is Feast of Tabernacles, right now. Uh, In fact, the whole nation of Israel right now is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens in the fall. We saw that in chapter 6, Jesus was also in Jerusalem for a festival of the Passover, and that's in the spring. That happens right at the same time that we celebrate Easter, because you have to realize that Easter Sunday is after the first Friday after Passover. Okay, so it's, it's the celebration of Passover that Easter is a part of. So when you, when you realize that, that these festivals has everything to do with Jesus Christ, that Jesus is our Passover, and the, that all of chapter 7 is, is taking place at another festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, and I believe it's probably the most fun uh, of the, all of the Jewish celebrations. Um, probably the most outdoors part because you don't even stay inside. You live in tents for a whole week. Everybody is just together. I, I think it would be awesome. I think it would be very fun. And there are teeming people in this city now. Jerusalem is full. We saw last time that Jesus' brothers wanted him to market himself a little bit better. He had lost a whole lot of disciples recently. It's interesting how Jesus must have flubbed up somehow. He, didn't, um, he couldn't keep the people that were following him. And his brothers were like, well, you need to change your tactics. And you need to go to Jerusalem where there's lots of people. Maybe with lots of people you can get a bigger crowd. And Jesus said, nope, I'm not going yet. Jesus was on a very specific timeline, completely God-ordained timeline. And it meant the difference between two or three days or one or two hours Or we saw when he speaks to Judas at the end, one or two seconds, that God's timeline is so specific because God intended his son to die at Passover. And not just during Passover, but at the moment that the lambs would be killed for Passover because Jesus was our Passover. And it's all God that's doing this in the background. So Jesus stays packed in Galilee and lets everybody else go. All of the town empties because everybody's required to be in Jerusalem. The scads of people are on the highway. Everybody is singing. It's a big party. And Jesus just stays there. He stays at home. We're going to see possibly that it's either this passage or the, or the one six months later when the next Passover, Jesus dies for us on Calvary, that he goes through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. And he's rejected. This is what we saw today in the, in the Bible reading. That he goes through and he sends out messengers before his face like a king would. And they did not want him at all. Now, the whole town of Sychar uh, believed in him. But most of the people, of course, did not. And, and he's rejected. Everywhere he goes, he's rejected. He's rejected by the people who shouldn't know to look for him. And he's rejected by the people who follow him. And he's rejected by the people whose job it was to know that he was coming. He is a rejected savior that multitudes of people will look directly into Jesus' face, knowing exactly what he's there for and have no interest in it whatsoever. That is so unbelievable to us that Jesus himself could be the preacher and nobody saved. Because 
It has, it's not about his ability to know what God's word is or his ability to speak or his ability to, to have power with his, with his um, presentation or whatever it is. It's not about words. Paul said, my gospel has nothing to do with words. It has to do with power. That when God moves on men, he is effective. But here is Jesus Christ reaching out the gospel to people. And people do not want it. And it's the same. All throughout the centuries, people do not want the gospel to their own damnation, of course. But, but it is amazing that you would imagine that Jesus would have hundreds of thousands of saved people if he were the preacher. But there is nobody. When Jesus dies on the day of Pentecost, which is the next festival after Passover, 50 days later, there are 120 of the believers in the upper room when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church. 120. But yet, how many people did Jesus affect during his life? But that was all that were his during that time. It's truly amazing. You have to realize that he has stayed back the entire six months from the previous Passover. So there were two festivals where the Jews had absolutely decided that he had to die. Had to die. This guy is dangerous. He is making claims, not just audacious claims, but his claims are strong. He will completely confuse us and befuddle us. We all have PhDs. Everybody in this club has a PhD. Every one of us are smarty, smarty pantses, and he speaks, and we all act, look like idiots. We cannot trap him in anything we try to get him to say. He knows exactly how to say it. He knows what to say. We can't argue with anything he has to say. He is, he's perfect in his logic. He's perfect in his knowledge of the scriptures. He's never been to our schools, but yet he is powerful. And they don't know what to do, except they must, must, must destroy him. And they've decided on it. For that reason, it says in verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. That was at the beginning of this chapter. He stayed away. Now, it's interesting that during this time that he is, his ministry actually kind of curtails. It goes, it goes down because he's now investing seriously in his twelve. He's investing in them. He is teaching them. He has gone, his ministry has touched everybody in the country. There's almost no sick people left. After three years of everywhere he went, he healed everybody in town. There's nobody left that's on the emergency room uh, lists. He is now spending all of his time with the 12. He's teaching them. He's teaching them. He's reteaching them. He's reteaching them. And they are learning from him. At the same time, you see at the end of chapter 6, all of those people that were following him leave, and the only people that are left are the 12. And then he says right at the end of chapter 6, have I not chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil. So even among the 12, there is someone sitting there watching him teach, watching him, looking at his very heart with no interest, no real connection at all only for what he can get, biding his time and waiting for the right moment so that he can get what he wants out of this man. You're going to see that. There are wheat and there are tares, and they grow up together. And it will not be to the end that you'll see what's going to happen. So when you see now that he, it's the timing. Remember, he told his brothers, this wasn't the time. My time has not yet come. Now his time has come. 
So he secretly goes into Jerusalem. He makes it in with no parade. Nobody knows he's there. All of a sudden, they look around, and he's in the middle of Solomon's colonnade, which is in the outer court of the temple, and he's teaching. And he really takes everybody by surprise. He takes the leaders by surprise. They, they were looking for him early. Remember, as everybody was coming into town, he's like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? See, Jesus was not there, and everybody was talking about him. But now Jesus is going to teach, and it's not the person of Jesus that they're going to be talking about. They're instead talking about what he has to say. So is he truthful? Can you believe what he's saying? His words are now on trial, not just his person. Everything about Jesus was judged. Everything about Jesus was judged. Because the lamb had to be judged. The lamb, when you have a Passover lamb, you made a little fence beside the front door and you kept it for three weeks and you looked at it and watched it and you watched it and you watched it and if there was anything wrong with it, it could not be the Passover lamb. It had to be observed and it had to be observed publicly. It had to be in your front yard. Everybody in town had to be able to look and see flawless. Same number of eyelashes on both sides and the there, were, there could be no disease, there could be no wounds, there could be, it had to be perfect. Only then was it qualified to be the victim. And now this is Jesus Christ being judged by all of these wicked people. Everyone looking, everybody watching, everybody seeing. Now Jesus will be the judge, but there has been no one judged like Jesus Christ. There's been, oh, through the centuries, there's no one that everybody has an opinion on. Everybody has their little thing that they want to say about Jesus. Okay? And everybody has their own imaginations of what Jesus is. But the Jesus that comes from this scripture is the Jesus that was watched and the Jesus that was rejected. So we'll see now that it's now about not just himself, but what he has to say. Let's look at this. This is from verse 14 of chapter 7, and we'll go down through verse 24. This is God's word. Now, about the midst of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, He knoweth this man letters. How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man doeth his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks of his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you go, uh, go about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goes to kill thee? Jesus answered and said to them, I have done one work, and you marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the father's. And you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. And if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken. You Are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Would it be exhausting to be hated everywhere you went? to never have anybody on your side, to everybody trying to trap you and trick you all the time, would it require you to pray all the time? He got up before the crack of dawn to pray because he was opposed at every step 
the people who should know who, who he was, the people who should be ready for him when he comes. And everything, everybody's an adversary. And you have him here talking to two groups of people at once. You have scads of people there. I mean, we're talking about this is as full a city as it could possibly be. And the temple is why you went to this place. You went to the temple, and he was at the temple in the outer courts teaching. So he had just, there were faces everywhere. But here comes the, the, the religious police, the hall monitors, and they wanted to know what was going on, and they were questioning him. And he's speaking, and he goes, why are you trying to kill me? Well, the crowd wasn't trying to kill him. And the crowd was like, you're, you're crazy. By the way, you have a devil. That just means you're nuts. You're nuts. Nobody's trying to kill you. What are you talking about? Your paranoia will destroy you. But Jesus was speaking directly to the ones who very well knew that they were trying to kill him. So it's interesting that you're looking at two layers at once, and he's answering if you know that his enemies are right there, it makes sense of what he's talking about. He is, he's talking to them and teaching the people at the same time. It's pretty, pretty interesting. So now they're going to dispute about what he says. He's talking about his doctrine, his teaching. So what is he teaching? Well, he's teaching everything that he has been talking about. He is making claims that he is God himself. He is not safe. Jesus is not safe. Jesus is not a good man. If it's just about his teaching, well, then he's nuts. You cannot say that Jesus was a good teacher without him being Lord of glory because he's claiming to be God. He's claiming that he should have the same worship as God. He's claiming that he can do the very same things that God can do, that there's nothing that God is, that he is not himself. Jesus is making not just bold, blasphemous terms, but this is dangerous type of blasphemy. This is a blasphemy that has to be right now taken care of. And if he would have come at the beginning of the feast, they would have already arrested him. But now it's too busy, too full. They can't, they can't do this. They cannot arrest Jesus, who everybody knows who we're talking about now. They can't arrest him right now. So he has to just, they have to just watch him. They're, they're just panicked. They're looking through their eyes at him, not knowing what he's going to do. And he's not safe in their opinion. He, he's not. So... Jesus taught like nobody else could teach. He taught in such a way that people were baffled. And the, the thing over and over again is that he has authority. Let's look at a couple verses. This is Matthew 7, uh, verse 28. Came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So that means he taught in a way that the scribes didn't teach. The scribes were the people who knew what they were talking about. The scribes were the Bible teachers. That's where the scribes were. They knew it all. They knew where every comma in the Bible was. They had memorized almost all of it, and they were able, willing to teach, and they would teach people. But when you taught somebody, since you have a religion that's primarily uh, founded on tradition, you cannot have somebody simply speak. It can't be like this, where a simple person can stand and say, this is what the Bible says, Let's look at the Bible. Let's let the Bible defend itself. Let's, let's quote the Bible. If, you wanted, if we're going to talk in the New Testament, let's pull the Old Testament in. Let's see wh where we're coming from. If you're going to talk about one apostle, you pull somebody else in to see, is there an echo here? Do, is there some kind of a conformity? Does the, does, the, does the people who lived with God day after day have the same message to see? 
And then any person can make up their own mind. They're not told what to think. But in a, but in a religion that's so apostate as the Jewish religion of the first century, it was all about tradition. And so these scribes would stand up and say, well, uh, Rabbi so-and-so said, and he would quote Rabbi so-and-so. Well, Rabbi so-and-so was been dead for 100 years. He, when he said something, didn't really say his own stuff either. He quoted another rabbi from another old place. And they just simply quoted each other. Because you can't have your new ideas. It can't be something. You have to say, well, is what he's saying the same as what everybody's said? They want to know, is, there, are, is he on our team? Is this who, you know, are, is this what we believe? Us? Us for no more? Is that what we believe? It's that idea that as long as you're part of us, we'll accept you. Well, Jesus didn't claim that he made it up himself. He didn't claim that he was self-taught. Jesus did not fall into their, temp- into their trap. We're going we're gonna to see that as he taught, he is being trapped. They want to trap him in his teaching. So they're listening to what he's saying. So, and they're trying to, and by the way, we're going to see next week, they do try to arrest him. They try as best they can to arrest him. And he walks through their hands twice during this time, during this day, he's walking twice. So we're going to see in verse 44, we'll see next week, that they send the temple guard. The temple guard, the ones who eventually will arrest Jesus is the temple guard. The ones who are the policemen of the temple. The, the chief priests, the, the, the teachers, the ones who are in charge, send these policemen out and go get him. Well, they walk over to him, and you have to realize that they are in the temple And that's where all the teachers are. There are probably teachers on every corner teaching their bunch of people. There's probably classes going on all over the place. They've heard it. They've heard it. They've heard it. And they come back and they don't have Jesus. (laughs) And the Pharisees are like, "Uh, where is he? We sent you to go arrest him. And they said, no one talks, no one teaches like he teaches. They were just mesmerized. They walked over in an attempt to grab him, to arrest him, to, to put him in handcuffs and they're just, they just sit on his words because he teaches as one that has authority. When he speaks, it's God that's speaking. And man knows when God is speaking. I don't care how wicked you are. You know when your God is speaking. And there's nothing you can do except just stop. It'd be like having your finger in an outlet. You don't, you're just, you're stopped in your tracks. And that's what these people are seeing. No one has ever taught like this. Well, so immediately, these people, interesting, the Jews marveled. This is verse 15. Jews marveled, saying, how knowest this man letters, having never learned? So if you can't argue with someone, if you can't dispute what they say, if you can't counteract what they say, if you know that he is masterful in what he knows about the Bible, and you know that he can dance circles around your logic, then the only thing you can do is attack him. So they're basically saying, He's never gone to the right schools. Why, how can anybody even trust him? He doesn't even, he's never been to the schools that we've all been to. You know, they wouldn't have let him in. He's a Galilean who looks like a Galilean. You have to realize we're looking at the end of the earth. Not only is Galilee part of Israel, but in between Galilee and, and, and Judea is Samaria, which is a foreign country. It's, it would, it would like the, it's the ends of the earth. And you've got the bumpkins up there who are not sophisticated. And Jesus talked like them. 
Does that make you happy to know Jesus had a West Virginia accent? I mean, just that makes me happy just to think about it, that he's not prissy and he's not foofy and he's, and he's not self-important. This is God who made us all. And he lived like a Galilean, and nobody could have told the difference. He looked like one, he dressed like one, he smelled like one, and that is Jesus, our God. And he is, he's totally ignorable. And here he comes, but he can do what nobody there can do. He can explain what the Bible means. And you can see the nutrition in it. It's like a spring of water that flows up above and bubbles out like an artesian well. And people are like, I've never heard anything like it. God is teaching us right now. And there is not a day that we meet together that prayers have not gone up that the Holy Spirit be our teacher. Not one, not one. Every single time that we meet, the Holy Spirit, will you teach us? Will you be the one that opens your word to us? You wrote it. You made us. You know what you're doing. You can tell us wonderful things that are here. And you can make them to us what we need. And Jesus did that. And they couldn't do anything except they attacked the man. Typical logic. It's what you do when you can't do anything. You just say, oh, yeah, well, you're ugly. Okay? That's what they did. Well, he never went to the right schools, as though that meant anything. Okay? Who cares? Matthew, Matthew 13. You'll see this over and over. Matthew 13 uh, and when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch as they were astonished and said, when has this man the wisdom and these mighty works? They, they can't imagine that this guy should know what he knows and does what he does. He, there is, like, it doesn't match. He should act like us, but he doesn't. And when he speaks, everybody listens. Well, but the problem of speaking is when you're talking of true things, that truth has to resound in a heart that's ready for truth. And if it's, your heart is not ready for truth, then you can actually know it's true and just decide that you're not having anything to do with it. That's a crisis. Paul said when you go and speak to someone with the gospel, you put them in a crisis because you will either be the smell of life to them or you will be the smell of death. When you tell, the, when you tell them the true gospel, when you tell them the simple gospel and not the... Not the the ornamented Christmas tree gospel, but the real simple gospel, and you share that with them, and the Holy Spirit says, true. They are then at a crisis because they are now have to say, do I accept this or do I reject this? It's the people who understood what Jesus said that rejected him. It's not when they didn't understand. It's when they did understand that they didn't want it. So here's Jesus saying, I'm not quoting any rabbis. I'm quoting God. So this is verse 16. Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, is that not masterful? He didn't say, Oh, well, you know, I'm smart. Or, Oh, no, well, I've read the Bible on my own, and this is what I think it means. Because they would have just, he'd been laughed out of town on that. They would have loved him to say that so that he could got him. But he said, No, I'm not quoting the rabbis. I'm quoting God. Which is interesting because you think of it as a defense. He's defending himself against their, their criticism. But what he's really doing is saying, you should do the same thing. You should be quoting God. You should be talking about the one who's truly powerful enough to do something in people's lives. You're malnourishing an entire generation of people, and it's your fault. They don't know straight up because you did not teach them. They all, they all think that they're fine and that because you did not do what you're supposed to do. 
The gospel is pitiful. I heard someone this week, this week with my own ears. And they said, they said, God came to offer, or Jesus came to offer salvation. And, in, and I said, amen. Immediately I said, amen. Then they went on, proceeded to say that the salvation Jesus came to offer you was so that you would not be anxious. He wanted to offer you salvation from anxiety, that he wanted to offer you salvation from negative thoughts. And I was like, okay. And I waited, and I waited, and they were done. They didn't mention a thing about being the wrath of God against his enemies, that that's what you're saved from. The God is the one who, who put, uh, it's hard to even say, God is the one who put hell where hell is. It's not that God is trying to rush around saving you from hell. It is hell because it's hell. It's where your enemies deserve to be. And your salvation from your Savior is to allow you to not suffer the way the devil and his angels will suffer. That is what it is. It is it's, he interposes himself. He puts himself between you and the fury of God's wrath upon your sin. It is your sin that will put you to hell. It's not your sins that do it. So everybody says, well, what about this? Is this going to send me to hell? And that's interesting because that's a trap too. Don't fall into those traps. Uh, no, your sins, no, I don't care what sins you practice, what sins you parade around as though somehow you can be as Christian as everybody else, but you'll practice whatever you wish. No, those sins are not going to send you to hell. You're, you will be sent to hell when you refuse to, re, to repent of your sins and turn to your Savior who is there to provide salvation for you. So when the gospel is pitiful and when the gospel is puny, when the gospel is not the gospel, Jesus speaks and people are like, why haven't I ever heard this before? It's, it's why is this new? Why I've gone to, to Sabbath school every day of my life. Why have I not heard this? And it's because the gospel is rare in this world. Amos said there is a, there is a famine coming and it's not a bread. It's a famine of the word of God where people will say, I wonder what God said about things and nobody will know because nobody told anybody. And they end up going to an adulthood with no idea that they've offended. Now they have, they've got miles of sin chains that are pulling them to hell. And what are you going to do? Are you going to repent? How? When you're so tied up? It, it's the idea that Jesus simply preached the word. And it's the word that does it. Do you see? It's the word that breaks you. It's the word that crashes your, your ice castle to the ground. This is, this is back to John uh, chapter 5. John chapter 5, when he was claiming to be God, this is what he says in 24. Verily I say to you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him who sent me hath everlasting life. Do you see? It's God who's giving him the words. You believe in my word. You hear my word and believe on him. You will have eternal life. That is what it is. He's not speaking his own doctrine. It doesn't belong to Jesus. Now, it's interesting that because Jesus is speaking of himself, you would think that it's self-promoting, that he's self-promoting, but he's not. He is simply only saying those things that God told him to say. We heard that in, in John 17 when we read the Bible together today. I have given them your word. I have given you, they, you told me what to say, and I told them what you said. 
So it's not Jesus making it up. It's Jesus being that. And because of that, it's not what Jesus claims to be. It's what God claims that Jesus is. And there's where the power is. So Jesus is making a claim and saying, you can believe my claims because I am humble. I'm only paying attention to what God is. I'm not trying to get my own way. I'm only listening for his teaching, and then I teach. Okay? And then here is the bomb. This is the nuclear bomb in chapter 7 because you are so not ready for it when it comes. You think of chapter 5 as being so strong when he's making all these claims to be God, and you think of, of 6 as being so shocking when he says, drink my blood and, and eat my flesh or you have no part of me. The, you're so totally knocked out by chapter 5 and 6 that 7 comes in and you don't even realize what he said. He says, look at, look at the next verse. So we looked at... We looked at 16. This is 17. If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Now, let me ask you to soak that in because that'll, you'll miss it. He is saying a person comes to me when he wants to do God's will. So I, like, I say, what? I'm a sinner. I don't want to do God's will. I want to do my will. But God who works in my heart makes me know that he has commanded me to be holy as he is holy. And what do I do with that? Do I just say, oh, okay, I'll be holy. That's impossible. I can't be holy. My goodness, I can't be. I've never been holy up to this moment. And I've only wanted to be my own king. I've only wanted to be my own God. And God, who is real God, speaks to me directly and says, Brian, you must be holy. And suddenly now... There's the crisis that Paul talked about. I'm now the one in crisis. What do I do about that? I can't be holy. I can't be holy. So the only thing that the Pharisees did is you go, oh, you go to the law. You go to the law. You go to the law. The law will make you holy. Well, that's ridiculous. The law doesn't make me holy. The law is a mirror that shows me what my face looks like. It doesn't wash my face. It only tells me that it's dirty. It doesn't tell me that I'm, it doesn't make anything better it's the thermometer that tells me I'm sick. It doesn't heal me. It just tells me that my temperature's wrong and that, that that indicates that there's a disease in me. The law can't save you. The law only condemns you. And the Pharisees are talking to Jesus about breaking the law. That's what he's saying. The whole argument here is that, Jesus, you're a lawbreaker. Not like us. We're law keepers. And Jesus mocks them to their face and says, Really? Moses gave you the law? Moses gave you circumcision because we're talking about circumcision here. Moses gave you the, the law and not one of you keep the law. Does that not make sense to you? If you are saying, I'll live on the law, thank you very much, do you not re realize the law will condemn you? Because you have to be exactly what the law says. Galatians, Romans 3 says, not one has done right. Not one in the whole world. There's not one that has done right. Not one among us has ever lived sinlessly except Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 says, if you fail one part of the law, it's the same as the whole part of the law. I, it's not like I can drill one hole in a boat and say, well, I didn't drill holes in the other part of the boat. Like, it's done. It's the same. It's like the smoking section of an airplane. You can't have a smoking section of an airplane. That never worked. It just doesn't work that way. So when you have, when you have, when Jesus is saying, Wait a second. You are claiming that I'm the lawbreaker? 
when not one of you have kept the law? So then he gives an example. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it wasn't Moses, it was the patriarchs. And we read, we read today that, that it was Abraham that was circumcised, long before the law, 400 years before the law. Abraham was circumcised as a, as a seal or a symbol of the covenant between Abraham and God. It was a, it was a symbol of the covenant that I promise that you will be my people and I will be your God. And that circumcision means that you are part of that covenant, part of that promise. Well, Jesus said, so let me get this right. You, in order to not disobey the law of Moses, which includes you must circumcise a male on the eighth day, go ahead and say, well, it doesn't matter about working on the eighth day because if you work on the Sabbath in order to circumcise someone, then that's fine because what you're doing is you're, you're, it's a higher obedience. You are obeying so that we are part of the, the, the covenant with God. So you're breaking one part of the Mosaic law in order to keep the other. Do you not know that's what I'm doing? That's Jesus' argument. That's beautiful. That's like a, that's a scalpel from a surgeon. He said, that's what I'm doing. You would circumcise a child on the eighth day in order to not break Moses' law, knowing that you're breaking Moses' law to do it. And I healed a man. He said, I did one miracle among you. Remember, this is from chapter 5. He tells that man that's laid on the sidewalk for 38 years, get up, take up your bed and walk. And suddenly everyone's like, whoa, he's working on the Sabbath day. He said, I did one sign among you, one miracle among you, and you will kill me for that? When you are not, you are not saved by the law. Do you not realize that the whole purpose of the law is that God would show mercy? And that's what I'm doing. I healed him to where he doesn't, he's not in pain. He's not in, he, he can stand, he can walk, he can work, he can do everything that a human should do that he could not do for 40 years. And you couldn't care less. So it, it's interesting that what's actually happening, the more that he teaches them about who God really is, the more it should melt their hearts and the more it makes them hard. Now, here's the crisis that we're in. When Jesus is speaking to those wicked men, there's a wicked man reading this Bible. I'm looking at this Bible. I'm reading it. And the same God who said, Brian, be holy, is the same God who now is telling me that Jesus broke the law in order to keep the law. He broke the law that he might show mercy to me. And if God is working in my heart, then what I'm doing is I can hear it. He's working in my heart in such a way that I will respond. So anybody that wills to do the will of God, I love King James. That's beautiful. If you will to do the will of God, now what? you almost have to, to parse that out. What does that mean? It means you want to. It doesn't mean you're doing it. It means you want to. Do you want to? Do you want to? Or do you mourn over your sin? like the Sermon on the Mount. Do you mourn because I'm a sinner? I'm a sinner and I'm from a long line of sinners and everybody I know are sinners and I only act wrong all the time. Does that break you? Does it make you sorry? Do you thirst and hunger after righteousness, not because you're righteous, but because God said, be holy and I want to please him? Do you call out, like David said, deep calls to deep calling out to the God that made you, and you're saying, God, I want to respond, but I'm dead. 
I'm as dead as a doornail. I need to be alive. And I can't obey you because I'm rotten to the core. And he said, do you want to? Then if you want to, then that person and only that person will know that I am speaking God's words and not my own. God will not give you anything if you're just a curious investigator. You'll sit there in your, in your PhD and you'll think about it and whatever, whatever, and God will leave you alone. But if you say, God, I want to be where you are. I want to follow you. I want to be like you, though I'm not. God counts that as righteousness. God counts that faith as righteousness. So when they held up that snake and everybody was dying of snake bite and they, the snakes were writhing in the sand and he says, look upon the snake. And you're, you're saying, okay, all two million of us, where is it? Where would the snake be if two million people were in this valley? Where would it be and where can I see it? Do you realize you didn't have to see it? You simply had to look upon it. You tell me where it is and I'll look. That's what faith is. Faith is not I'm good and God needs to reward me. Faith is I'm bad and God told me to be holy. Look to him. All the ends of the world and be saved. That's what he said. And here's Jesus telling these rotten people who will nail him to a cross because he broke the law. And they're hoping in the law. Oh, I do not hope in the law. I do not hope in the law. Give me Jesus. Give me the cross. I'll sit under the cross until I meet my master because I cannot be accepted by based upon me being good. I'm not. But he said, if I will to do the will of God, then I'll know. Does that make you happy? That makes me happy. That makes me happy. Praise God. Amen.